Welcome to the Business of Doing Science podcast brought to you by Bagamian Scientific Consulting. On this podcast, we discuss different aspects of pursuing science-related careers and just how science is actually done beyond the bench. So stay tuned to find out more. Hello, I'm Karun Bagamian, and in today's podcast, we continue our discussion from the last episode on pursuing science-related careers. I'm joined again by my co-hosts, Lindsay Leitner and Heidi Bolduck, and our special guest, Catherine Saylor, who are all going to give us some more insight into tailoring your resume and marketing yourself for a non-academic career, be it a career in industry, government, or a nonprofit. Yes, so today we're going to continue talking about transitioning out of academia. However, we're going to focus on the last couple of steps of your job search journey. So if you recall on the last episode, we really delved into the first couple of components of the job search. These were your self-assessment, setting some professional and personal goals, as well as identifying which jobs are going to best match your work-life priorities. So today we're going to talk more about how to target potential jobs or employers, structure your resume, interview for the position, and ultimately, if all goes as planned, get hired. So let's jump back in and land that job. So that brings us to the last piece, which is the most important, what this whole discussion is about, which is the whole job search thing. I know we've talked a lot about the, you know, leading up to it, but getting ready for it. But but that's important. Yeah, it is important. But now we're ready to like actually jump into that job search. So you're ready to apply, to interview, you know, you've got your game face on, let's do this, like it's happening. So there are still some things to consider, right? You're going to probably be using a resume. You're going to ditch the CV. So a lot of times as an academic, you're used to having very long, drawn out CVs where you're listing everything, including what you ate for breakfast. Everything (laughs) is on there. Everybody knows about you. And unfortunately, when you leave academia, no one cares about that anymore. Unless maybe you're doing like a writing job or something like that, where they want to see all the publications, what have you. But for the most part... Everyone is going to want to see a one to two page resume, period. If you can keep it to a page, that's it. Whatever you need for that job needs to be on that page. And you really need to get in the habit of tailoring your resume to the particular job that you're applying for. So, you know, reading that job description, making sure that your resume matches the job description, very important. Again, keeping it to a page. I don't know about you guys. I know, Catherine, that with your experience with USA jobs, right? Like that has a whole different resume. Structure, yeah, format. Yeah, format. So the federal government has their own building tool to make your resume. And, you know, some recruiters and some folks in HR, depending on what agency you're applying for, says it has to be built in USA Jobs. I've gotten a job through there without using the builder, but what you're saying is completely correct that it needs to be two pages. It needs to have the number of hours you worked a week, how much you were getting paid per hour. It's very, very specific versus if you're applying for a job in academia or industry, for example, you would never say, oh, I worked this, you know, I worked as a postdoc 70 hours a week and I got paid $40,000 a year as a postdoc. Like most, most industry folks are not going to ask you that but for a federal job it has to be there in black and white interesting i didn't know that yeah yeah that's crazy did they ever tell you why that is like is it just for some i'm just curious yeah so you know they use the gs the general schedule this pace system where Uh, you basically start at a level and then you get bumped up and they want to make sure that you're applying for jobs that are this is my interpretation no one has ever outright told me this but that you're basically getting paid a 
little bit better than you did in your last job. This is also part of the negotiation process when you get a, a final offer or tentative offer through the federal government. So let's say I made $50,000 in my last job and I'm applying for a job where the starting salary is $40,000. For a recruiter, that might be great. But then when you get to your interview, that might be a little bit questionable. Like, why are you willing to take such a step back? They are just very transparent about salary, incredibly transparent about salary. State jobs, that's also been my experience. They're incredibly, you know, you can search anyone who at least in the state of Florida for sunshine state laws. I don't know what state regs are for other states, but you can search any state employee's salary at any moment and they're all posted online. So it's just from my interpretation, again, a transparency thing. Whereas if you work in industry, it's quite a bit more nebulous. They don't have to post anything or let anyone know what other folks get paid. (laughs) Yeah. That's interesting. So it's a very specific resume, but I think you made a great point, Lindsay, about tailoring You know, in academia, especially when you get out of your PhD, you're like, okay, I know how to summarize data. I know how to go through the primary literature and be able to draw conclusions. I know how to generate a research question. I know how to formulate a hypothesis and then specific objectives that would either support that hypothesis or not. You have all of these very important skills, especially for STEM, but for at least federal jobs, they want to know you have the specific KSAs, the the skills and the knowledge. So if the skill is making public information briefs, they want to know, have you ever made a public information brief, a public facing brief and on what topic? It's very specific. It's much more drilled down kind of in the nitty gritty than the big picture do you know how to ask a research question or do you know how to formulate a hypothesis? They want this very specific skill. So I think you're absolutely right. For a lot of jobs, your resume needs to speak exactly to the skills that they're looking for in the yep, job announcement. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Like, I think that's and a I, huge piece. Yeah. <laughs> I've had friends that are very strong analysts. Mm. So they applied for a job and they are familiar with a program more sophisticated than a statistical program that is used in a medical facility. But if they don't actually put that software on there, that resume just gets thrown out. So in this case, the friend went and learned that one and then was able to add it because she was so good at the more sophisticated ones. She figured it out pretty quick and was able to add it to her resume and then actually got an interview. So yeah, and those real job searches, like outside of academics, they definitely are looking for what they put in their posting. <laughs> so Yes, exactly what they put in their posting. Yeah, exactly. Don't, don't leave them guessing. You know, if yeah. you, I was, I was helping again, a friend with a cover letter and he was writing about just generally working with stakeholders. Like you need to say what specific stakeholders you've worked with on what specific species, this is a wildlife job, and what specific actions were taken that resulted in a change in regulations. If that's the kind of, you know, that's what's in this announcement. They don't, they cannot infer, they cannot guess, they cannot, they're not going to basically take your cover letter and CV and try to- Yeah, piece it together. Exactly. Mm Glean your skills. You have to basically spoon feel. These are my my skills uh, specifically. And I think, Corinne, what you mentioned with your friend who learned that program. Yeah. That's like huge. That's cool. So 
if there's a particular job that you really, you know, I want this, I like this, I have most of the skills, I don't have that one, just take the time to learn it. Yeah. And apply for that job again. It doesn't need to be exactly. like right then and there, it's over, you know, yeah, exactly. or I'm going to lie or something. Don't do yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, even if you're honest about it, because these days, one of the big ones is computer programs, right? Or proficiency in different types of coding. A lot of bigger companies test you at this point because people yes. do say, oh yeah, I know this, this, and this, but there's a difference between beginner intermediate expert and stuff like that. If there's something that I've wanted to include on mine, I'm always very clear about the level. I, I do include Spanish as one of my languages and I say I'm a beginner in it because I understand it, but I'm never going to speak it and I'm not going to be valuable to a team looking for someone bilingual, but I can do some of the rudimentary things that might help because you know I'm a writer and stuff like that. So it does, doesn't hurt, but I would never make it seem like I'm really know Spanish because I don't. I think you make up a, make a great point about knowing it as part of a team. You could support folks that were part of a bigger team that had fully fluent individuals yeah. on it. So for a lot of government jobs, you know, like for example, where I work now, we have a full-time statistician that does all of our stats for all of our manuscripts and reviews everything. So I'm not hired as, hired as a statistician. I'm hired as a biologist. I know a little bit about stats. If they ask for specific skills and knowledge in a job amount announcement about statistics, just be honest, because like you said, there, there could be other people on the team that are going to support that. Now, if you're a biologist and you're applying for a statistician job and you have very <laughs> rudimentary skills, Probably not going to go very well. Probably not, <laughs> unless you're really amazing and you really yeah. are incredibly skilled and you know a lot of um, yeah. programs and yeah, this yeah. is one of your passions. But I would not apply. For example, I would not apply for a statistician <laughs> yeah, position. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, just being honest about those yeah. skills, highlighting them. But yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head. You yeah. have to be honest about your level of proficiency. Yeah, totally. and then balancing it with what Lindsay said, which is being open to learning. Of course, if it is something you think you can learn or like in my case, because a lot of my projects are writing, if I'm going to branch out into something new, I prepare a writing sample, you know, because that's what they're going to want to see. Every field is different. And if it's something you're really interested in and you want to be competitive for it, there's different ways. And that's that's where talking to people in those positions can also help to talk about, which is, I think, researching the company and the job, right? Exactly, exactly. Either you or Catherine had mentioned the cover letter. The cover letter is huge. That's one thing I wanted to, before we move on from the resume, yeah. everything, write the cover letter. That's like a, a huge piece of advice. I think most of us kind of know this, but you know, if you're thinking that you can get by without writing one and that <laughs> you're going to get an interview or that anyone's going to respect you, I really <laughs> think you know, making sure that you write that cover letter and making sure that you understand the company that you've done enough research before you've written that letter. So now you found the job, you're like, oh, wow, these are all the things that I want to do. Oh, where is this again? What company is this? Okay, I need to learn about this company. Because when you write your letter, and you're obviously going to be talking about yourself, but you want to be able to speak to some of those things that their mission is in conjunction with those particular characteristics of the job that they're looking yeah. for they're looking to fill right exactly. um, the next piece would be reaching out to some people that maybe work in that company if you've maybe put in four applications to one company for positions and you know that you want to work there start reaching out to people 
asking them about it because maybe you'll find out that like, I really don't like that work culture. I really don't like, you know, they're saying that this is what I'm going to be doing, but the person that I talked to said that they do X, Y, and Z, which are things that I don't necessarily want to be doing. Getting that scoop is important, even though I would still probably say go for the interview anyway. If you get an, inter- if you get an interview, you should always take it. It's great practice. Yeah. I mean, I've had to do so many, but yes. I can tell you from interview one to interview like 20, there was a huge difference in terms of just being comfortable one and also kind of knowing they're all kind of the same. You, you get a sense of what's going to happen and it builds up that confidence, which is important to have, you know, when you go into an interview. I totally agree, Lindsay. Take the interview because you'll learn something from that interview, either about yourself or the organization or the specific group. I have taken interviews for jobs I knew I was not going to take, which sounds crazy. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) But just because I want that practice interacting with different groups and being able to speak to my experience not off the cuff because I prepare, prepare for these interviews, but really being able to highlight and synthesize the kinds of work that I've done. It keeps things fresh in my mind and, you know, it keeps me more engaged, honestly, with my current work, as crazy as that sounds. So I, yeah, always take the interview. And then afterwards you can say, I've decided to stay in my current job or I've decided to pursue another opportunity. Thank you so much. These are the things I really enjoyed about interviewing with you. I hope Uh, we can be in touch in the future, or perhaps there's another position that will be a a better fit or the timing work work out. But yes, always take the interview, always take the interview. Some people hate interviews, but if you do enough of them, they become fun. Yeah, (laughs) They help you develop your pitch too. I think everybody should have a little like 30 second, you know, pitch about yourself, about what you do, about what you want to do. You never know who you're going to meet anywhere. So it's good to, it's good to have that in general, but it's really good. I feel like for an interview, because sometimes that's the first question. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, oh, okay, yes. well, yeah. boom, got that, nailed it. <laughs> Not going to waste your time today. <laughs> like, so I think that that's really super important being able to like, yeah. Take the interview. You have, how yeah. you can translate them to that job. And another oh. thing that folks maybe don't know, someone else I was helping look for a job. After the interview, always, always, and maybe this is common knowledge, but always thank the interviewer, regardless if you want the job or not, always thank the interviewer. Highlight again why you think you'd fit in if you really do want the job and thank them for their time, what you liked about the interview. If you learned anything, highlight what you learned during the interview. I mean, I, I think that's gotten me a job in the past for sure. And I think for this particular person, it helped get them their current job because they were like, oh, I should follow up with the interview panel. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Always follow up with the interview panel. Even if you're, even if it's two or three sentences in an email, yeah. that's totally fine. That's a really good point to make, really good piece of advice because yeah, when I think about it, almost every job, I always thank everybody, but yeah, it's always been like, oh yeah, you again. <laughs> we need to fill this. Like, you know, <laughs> can we have another talk? So you never sure. want to just disappear. You know, you yeah, could be awesome, right. but you don't want to just disappear. And then someone's like, wait, does this person even care? They just ghosted yeah. me now. Like, you know. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Definitely don't want to do that. Definitely don't want to ghost your interviewer, but I don't want to age myself. I try not to do it within the next hour after the interview, but like within 24 hours. Yeah. Follow up. Not too much of an eager beaver, but yes, thank you for your One time. minute after the interview. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> It's me again. It's me again. It's me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Then they're like, never hire this person. (laughs) Yeah. I'm curious to ask Heidi, do you have anything to add to the interviewing question? Because I'm thinking about your current job transition, because it was quite different from what you were doing before. Yeah. Well, I definitely agree with always, like you were saying, always thank your interviewers. Um, I don't think a lot of people, I guess, take the time to think about it. But for instance, in my past, I worked at a supervisor in food and beverage at a theme park hotel. And, you know, I was one of those people having to do interviews. And it was something that I had to take time out of my day to help the team with. So there isn't always a dedicated recruiter or a dedicated interviewer. Sometimes it's the manager on their lunch break. Yeah, that's a really good thing to point out for people to think about. Yeah. Yeah. So that highlights another reason why it's so important to send a thank you email or even just say in person, Hey, I appreciate your time today for meeting with me, getting to know me. You know, I'm really interested in the position if you are. No. Cool. In a lot of consulting firms, that's kind of how it is. They have people that volunteer to do these interviews and then they have to figure out how to finagle it into their schedule. They're like, I know that I have to interview this person how do I make my schedule fit? You don't know what's going on behind the scenes. And then they have to actually think like, okay, is this person a good fit? Where would they be able to work in the firm? Who do I need to connect them to? Or actually this person was like awful, terrible. So you never know, but people usually have to move their schedules around and make things Mm -hmm. work. And so it's nice to show appreciation and it sets you apart from everybody else. It's just, that's another interview that they're doing. I know for me, for government, not that I've had that many interviews, I think I've had four maybe or five government interviews between Fed and state. I've never had an interview that wasn't a pre-scheduled panel interview with anywhere from three three to seven people. Wow, yeah either in person it's a or lot to coordinate online. yeah it's a lot to coordinate so yeah. thanking the person and if there's a program assistant i think that you made a good a great point heidi like it might not be the hiring official but there might be a program assistant also that's coordinating and scheduling all of these people and making sure everybody shows up on the call and taking role and then for like federal government then you also have to have an observer to make sure that everything remains impartial Making sure that you're reaching out to that program assistant too and thanking them for their time and setting everything up, I think is also very valuable. Yeah. That's a good point. Yep. Yeah, I think that's yeah. huge. People's jobs are actually to find Help. and hire people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, it is. It's a lot of work. Yeah. And, you know, I it's interesting because when we first talked about this podcast, I made this joke where, well, I haven't applied for a job in like 10 years or something like that. Well, I haven't had a business for 10 years, but I've, I've applied for academic positions in the past 10 years. But since I've started my business, yeah, I have not applied technically for jobs, but I do. Employer. I, but also, but <laughs> no, I do. I do interview with clients. Uh, you know, when I'm trying to get a new client, it's a mini interview, right? You know, I was thinking about that. I'm like, actually, yes, I still do it's very different than officially applying for a job. But I was like, oh, yeah, I'm putting myself out there in a different way. So my point being, 
that there's a lot of different ways that we put ourselves on the market and that we look for jobs. And yeah, staying in the mix of things helps you hone your skills for that. Yeah, I completely, I agree with you. I, I think the networking piece is huge. And it's something that every, you know, graduate student should be already trying to incorporate into their day to day. I know it's kind of frowned upon to be like socializing or, you know, joining too many extracurriculars because of your research, but it's crucial. Yeah, definitely. Probably in half of the jobs that I've had, I've known someone that was able to vouch for me or they hired me directly. So And it's all through networking and through getting to know people, people learning like who you are, your work ethic, you as a person, do they want to work with you? It's something that you can start doing while you're still in school. And then also when you're transitioning out, starting to really think what societies are there that I can join? Yes, that's really good advice. Yes people that I can talk to or, you know, things like that, where you can kind of stay in the mix and let Mm -hmm. people know I'm looking for a job. I want to work. This is what I want to do. You know me, do you know anybody? And someone's going to know someone's going to know somebody. Yeah. (laughs) I've, I've realized that the majority of my jobs and clients all have come from my network or personal referrals. Very few cold calls. I do get those too, but I'm a writer. I'm a consultant. I'm self-employed. A lot of things come from just people trusting me and knowing my work and referring me out. I still have to impress the clients that I'm talking to, but it really is valuable having that. And it has contributed a lot to the success of my business. So it's always important to uh, keep that in mind. I completely agree. Networking is so huge. Aside from like the self-assessment piece, right? And knowing kind of what jobs you want to go for. staying in the networks, getting in the networks is really going to be like, those are the two things, figure out what you want to do and then find who you know, or who knows who's your reputation, let people know what you can do, volunteer to do things. Maybe it's an unpaid type of like apprenticeship or something like that, but like letting people know that you can do these sorts of things and you're willing to do them, you're enthusiastic about it can lead to other things and it, you know, you can learn and that sort of thing. And then I think like the last thing, because we've touched upon almost all the main important pieces, but the last yep. thing is professional skills. I know this is something that we all probably agree on having some of those professional skills. I know Heidi, that you had talked about it before. The last thing that like a student is thinking about, oh, I should probably learn how to be more professional, how I talk, how I write, how I behave, because it does translate into when you leave school, when you leave academia, you're going to go into a whole other arena. And Catherine, I'm sure, you know, being in government, it's just totally like Hmm. the structure is different and you got to be able to fit into that. And that transition needs to kind of happen seamlessly. So that's something that I did want to kind of touch upon because I think it's important to kind of know how to get started with, with that and where to build some of those skills. I don't know, Heidi, if you wanted to talk yeah. a little bit about it because you. Yeah, definitely. I had brought up previously. Yeah. brought up previously that since I am a trainer, I see a lot of people that are coming into a professional job environment, speaking with customers And, you know, using text message jargon and severely shortened (laughs) words and, you know, using the letter U instead of Y-O-U and trying to talk that way to a customer. 
<laughs> and it's Sorry. not like they're trying to be rude or they're being inconsiderate. They just legitimately have always communicated like that for the past yeah. you wow. know, 18 years of their life or whatever. So when you coach someone on that, you kind of have to take a step back and sort of say, Hey, do you realize that what you're doing is like not professional? And then depending on whether they say yes or no, go from there on, you know, how to approach it. Yeah. I agree. Always, always err on the side of being overly professional or overly formal. And then people can tell you, Oh, you don't need to be so formal in this interaction. You know, I, I still call one of my bosses, sir. He absolutely hates it. And I did it in a meeting on Monday (laughs) and I cringed at myself. I was like, Oh no, he hates this. I'm going to hear about this later, but it's just, you know, erring on the side of professionalism or showing respect, especially, I mean, government is a little bit different. I think in some ways that there is like a very specific chain of command. And again, when you're doing your self-assessment, you should assess, can I deal with a chain of command like this where I have someone I'm reporting to and then people that are reporting to me and it's not so, I mean, it is hierarchical, but it's also very obvious and it's not, people aren't trying to undermine you or be covert about it. It's just very black and white. This is kind of, these are the people you report to. These are the people that report to you. Can you deal with it? But, you know, start out more professional, get back to my original point, start out more professional and you can always ease up. It's really hard to be very casual and then become more professional. Yeah, that's right. I completely agree. I think deferring to the formal is the way to go. Yeah. Even if you're not a very formal person, it's totally out of character yeah. for you. Like I know probably most of us <laughs> are like <laughs> well, that, you know, but it's especially coming yeah. out of grad school or, you know, a scientific environment where most people are, especially like in biology or wildlife or things like that, t-shirt shorts, you know, Tiva, you know, like, yeah, I, mean, I even, I even oh chose, I chose doing way a to PhD. stereotype. I chose, I chose, it's because when I was choosing what I wanted to major in, I'm like, oh, professors, they get to control their schedule and they wear whatever they want. That actually was an appealing part of that job for me. But, you know, as a business owner, I definitely dress up now because I know that that conveys something important to my clients. So I make sure to do that no matter what, even though that's not what I would choose to do. But I definitely agree with that in general because dress is also important, you know, and stuff like that. I think impressions are everything. Yes. (laughs) And proper use of pronouns, honestly. I got hit up by a recruiter and I didn't look at their pronouns at the bottom of their email initially when I went to respond to their email. And this is for a job that I really wanted to end up getting canceled, which is very sad. But, you know, just even working with the recruiter using the proper salutation to interact with them via email or over the phone or in person or whatever the case may be, just addressing people the way that they want to be addressed. Let's just say that generally. Yes, I do that too. Some people want to be addressed as professor such and such. Some people want to be addressed as doctor such and such. Some people say, call me by my first name. One of my mentors in vet school, which was a very formal um, place. Yeah wanted to only be called by his first name, period, dot, end of story, you know, just addressing people properly 
and appropriately. And if you don't know, ask them yeah. if there's yeah. no signals in their email. Usually there yeah. are signals. Yeah, exactly. I know. I try to always look at that, you know, to use the right titles sometimes, especially when you're doing these kind of things. And yes. yeah, if you're interviewing... Some people might not care at all and some people might really care, you know, so like it's always important to err on the side of being very intentional when you're applying for a job or looking for a client or which would be the case if you're an independent contractor, just be intentional with what you're putting out there and yes. and look and look at what they're telling you. I like that point that there's signals and what they're writing or how they address you. That's what I usually look at. That's one of the things, you know, how they address me, what it says in the email and stuff like that. Yeah. What's in their signatory line. Yeah. Maybe they don't care, but yeah. Yeah. But it still. depends on the field. It really yeah. depends on the field. And exactly. again, air on the side of formality and then you yeah. can always ease up. Exactly. I completely agree with that. Same also, here. So we we actually have a series of posts about a lot of these topics. So we will be posting those and feel free to take a look. We have one specifically about how to tailor your resume. We have ones about transferable skills. Today's podcast is also supported by different reading materials that can be found on our website. Totally. Well, I think that we've hit all the main points. Does anybody else have anything to add real quick before we wrap up enjoy it enjoy the process of applying it can it can be fun the more you do it it's it's a challenge you know it's kind of like a fun challenge if you can get yourself in the right brain space to do it i I agree i think it's great to have you guys saying that because so many people dread this so (laughs) it's nice to hear a positive spin on it and to let people know that it gets easier and it's not as, you know, it might be scary at first, but as anything else, when you practice and try, things get a lot easier and it won't be as scary as it was initially. Yes, totally agree. I completely agree. I think this is all great advice for everybody. Definitely things to consider, you know, just to make it easier. So you don't have to go it alone. There's resources for you. You can listen to this podcast. You can read the blogs, look at the resources that we post you know, it does get easier and do enjoy the moment because there's just so much stress around it and it doesn't have to be that way, especially when you can nail down, okay, like here are some of my non-negotiables, like Mm -hmm. here's the research that I'm going to do to figure it out. Let me talk to people. Let me put myself out there, put the right foot forward, you know, usually ends up working out down the line. And I just want to thank Catherine again so much for joining us on this podcast because your insights were extremely valuable. Thank you so much. Yeah, Happy to be you. here. I will yeah. talk about applying for jobs all day, every day. Thank you for joining us and listening to the Business of Doing Science podcast. For more information on our guests and access to career development resources, please click on the link to our website below. And remember, you can also visit the website to learn more about how Bagamian Sai can help you do science.